Don the Predator Fry. We're the United States of America. We're the toughest people ever walked this planet. It has to be Frank Mir. People ask her, do you feel bad you broke the person's arm? I'm like, no. Chael Sonnen. If you want to manipulate the system, first thing you have to do is understand the system. The Beast Bob Sapp. They say, man, he was a champion. He was a warrior. He was great. For me, I'd rather you say I suck, okay? Because I don't want the brain damage. Jason Mayhem Miller. It was the worst experience of my life. Almost as bad as being on this show. It's time to knuckle up and throw down. Welcome to In This Corner with Cyrus Fees. I'm Cyrus Fees. And on this episode, we are going to get into an interview with the smashing machine, Mark Kerr, a guy that really is one of the more, you know, cult favorite, incredible fighters that in that golden era of the UFC, he had this run that was literally unmatched by anybody else. The way he came in and just ran through the UFC heavyweight division, won back-to-back tournaments, uh, went over to Pride and had some great highlights there and then had this incredible spiral that he went down. It's all, you know, very well put into the documentary called The Smashing Machine, which was done by HBO. And it's going to be remade in the future by Dwayne Johnson, starring as Mark Kerr in the biopic, The Smashing Machine. So such an incredible cult fan favorite fighter is Mark Kerr and such a legend that he has. And I really didn't know a whole lot about Mark going into it. I had always heard the name. It was in my lexicon. I knew who he was. But after I watched the documentary, I really got to see how dominant he really was. And, you know, and I got to see that that fall that he had. And it makes you so interested because you want to see a guy like that come up from the depths and, you know, get better. Well, he has. And, uh, and Mark is such a humble, genuine guy. And you'll notice that in this interview. It was literally one of the best interviews that I've done in this incredible series with all these legends and these enormous names in the mixed martial arts industry. I really enjoyed this interview right up there at the top, at least top three. So uh, let's get right into this. Uh, I want to thank everybody that has listened to the podcast thus far and loved the Forrest Griffin and Stephen Bonner episode. It's only to get better from here, guys. Uh, Some of these interviews are mind-blowing, and we got some of the most interesting names in the sport, and we're just going to keep hitting you with them every week, twice a week here on the audio podcast. So without any further ado, let's get right into it. It's the smashing machine, Mark Kerr, here on In This Corner. 13-year veteran in mixed martial arts, D1 collegiate wrestling national champion uh, with Syracuse, multiple-time ADCC champion and super fight champion, World Valley Tudos championship tournament winner, uh, UFC 14 and 15 heavyweight tournament winner, and of course the subject of the critically acclaimed HBO documentary, The Smashing Machine. I am talking to the one and only Smashing Machine, Mark Kerr. Mark, how are you doing out there? I'm I'm good, Cyrus. I appreciate you having me on the show. And, you know, you guys, you were talking a little bit about pre-show. It's like, I should do this more often. You know, I actually enjoy, you know, talking to other people about the industry and some of the things going on, some of the fighters going on. So I appreciate you having me on. Oh, 100%, man. I, I have just been digging in, you know, to the history of MMA before I even got into it. And um, yeah, man, I've made so many good connections over the years. So I love rehashing those and talking about these stories because these are the type of stories that people just love to hear about anyways. And, and you guys are some of the most interesting fighters that we've ever seen in the sport. You guys were trailblazers. 
Um, so it's very important, I think, to keep that history alive and keep you guys out there. But uh, first and foremost, you know, this show was born out of the coronavirus epidemic, the pandemic, because we needed <laughs> entertainment out there. And uh, I just want to know, man, you're in Arizona, which is, it's a hot spot and has been a hot oh, spot God, for yeah. a while. How are things going out there right now? You know, it's, it's been a little bit tough, especially, you know, I have a 15-year-old son and it has been, oh God, man, it's been really difficult to keep him entertained over the stretch of time. And then, you know, in Arizona during the summer, you add the additional factor in of heat, which has been ridiculously hot out here. Um, pools are closed. Um, you know, you know, obviously your neighbor's pool's a little different, but still, you know, you, you know, I have a couple of risk factors associated with the virus. Um, like I was diagnosed with type two diabetes, you know, a couple of years ago. And so it's one we're trying to tell my son, Hey, listen, you know, here's a group of people you're allowed around. You're not allowed to expand that circle one way or the other. Here's why. And getting him to understand it and not look at it like, yeah, okay, dad. You know, okay, Dad, but you know, it, it's been it's been it's been a trial, and and it's still I think we still have a little bit to go. You know, I mean, it, it just really has been interesting. So yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I, I can totally relate with you. My son uh, just happens to have a, kind of a mild form of asthma, and he's five years old, and it's it's one of those things that why take the chance if you don't have to? So uh, we're playing yeah. it as safe as possible, you know, because you don't want to have that kid that you know has the underlying and you know. Who knows what could happen? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, yeah. And, and you know what? It's the unfortunate thing is, it's it's not that I'm afraid of, you know, like it's talking to somebody. It's like, hey, I have two friends. One's 82, the other one's 79. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, you run. So I, it's, it's, it's presented a new, I think it's presented a new moral dynamic. I think you know, so. interjected into it too. So it's interesting. I'm glad the show was born and I'm glad I'm talking to you, put it that way. <laughs> hey, it all worked out. It all worked out. And, uh, Obviously, we, we're thinking of the people that are seriously affected by this thing. Um, one thing that has happened, uh, and it really is affecting folks, is that you know collegiate sports, high school sports are all getting pushed back and pushed back. And uh, you really feel for these athletes. And, and obviously, yourself coming up through high school and uh, they're in Toledo and then some in Iowa. Yeah, um, yep. You know, obviously, you know how important that is to these kids. This is life, right? I'm sure it was life for yeah. you. Uh, you oh, can't yeah. imagine what they're dealing with right now. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Is it just one of those things that's just really unfortunate, or do you think maybe it should be handled different? You know, I, I think they can not, you know what, there's been enough protocols. I think people are coming up with enough intelligent ways to go about uh, presenting this and allowing the kids to still participate in it. Um, like with my son right now, he's in phase two of the football season. So, so phase one is they have these small little groups and the groups can't change. They have the same coach, um, the kids in the group, if one drops out, he's out. You know, there isn't adding another kid to the group. And then they go to phase two, which is the, they expand the group. And so the group gets a little bit bigger. And then phase three and all this other stuff. So, so obviously some smarter people than me and smarter than people than, you know, some of the people who sat down and said, okay, how do we do this? How do we make it where we can still protect the kids, still protect the staff, still have a balance between the two? And I think there's a balance. Like what the Big Ten did in canceling all football, it, I, think it's, I think it's just a broad overreaction. 
Um, and, and not that I'm from Ohio and Ohio State, but Ohio State has like a, a perennial epic, you know, team that they put together. And for those kids not to be able to get on the field, I think it's tragic. I, I honestly think it's tragic. I know how much sports meant to me. And for all the different reasons that, that they mean something, you know, the participation, the discipline, the dedication, you know, all the different time, the effort. I mean, most kids that make it to that level, they've been fantasizing and training for this since they've been a kid kid, you know, like five, six, seven, eight, nine years old. And so to take that away from them, um, I think it's just, I think it's an overreaction. I, I really do. Yeah, no, I, I understand what you're saying, and I. But it's funny because I, I like the balance that you're at because you know you do want to think of the safety of people, but there are ways to go about it. I think some of the leagues. I mean, I, I think the UFC has done a good job, and um, you know the NBA what they're doing right now, and and some of these other sports leagues they figured mm-hmm. it out. Um, you know, you just got to really get in there and brainstorm and, and figure things out because there there really is a lot of not only just money, but you know these kids' futures on the line. So. Um, I totally get where you're coming from and hopefully they'll get these things kind of shaped out as we go on. Uh, taking you all the way back to Toledo, man. Uh, the thing about Toledo, Ohio, the only thing I remember about Toledo as a kid is, is the mud hens, just because <laughs> in Iowa, we always played the Toledo mud hens. I definitely remember that. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. What was growing up in uh, Toledo like? You know, it's, it's, the, it's, uh, it's a medium-sized town. You know, I'm, I'm going to blank on this now, but I think it's like 250,000, 300,000 people. Um, I grew up on what's called the east side. So the Maumee River, which goes through Toledo, it divides the city. So you have the north, the west, and the south side, and then you have the east side. We were almost considered like another planet um, just because we were divided by the river. Oh, you're an east sider. You know, yeah. so it almost felt like this outsider, you know, kind of attitude. And it felt like growing up, like you're always fighting against the system or you're always going to prove somebody wrong. Yeah. Um, so I think in some, in some ways it motivated me um, to have that kind of outcast feeling of like, oh, I'll show you, you know, I'll show you. And so um, I think it was motivating. I, I would raise my kid in, in Toledo. It's just, it's a great place to grow up. It has um, just a different feel and a different beat to it, especially I've been in Phoenix now 20, 25 years. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, it's just a great place. A lot of my family is still back there. Um, when I came to Arizona and I didn't have to deal with winners, I was never going I was never going back home. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it just, it's, it's a really great place. No doubt. Uh, and then, you, so tell me about how, and I, and I, you know, I looked at your Wikipedia and did some research and such, but so you get over to Bettendorf, um, mm-hmm. which is kind of chance because you end up running into Militich. Um, yeah. Isn't that crazy? You know, <laughs> Bettendorf's favorite son, Pat Militich. Um, yeah. <laughs> So, so talk so, about that, how that all isn't that how crazy. That all so, so I, so my brother, who's quite a bit older than me, he's 15 years older than me. Um, I was in eighth grade getting ready to be a freshman in high school. And I was just unruly that summer. And my mom and said, okay. So she sent me and my, my other brother, Matthew, we're only 15 months apart. So he was going to be, a junior in high school I was gonna be a freshman and she said you're going to live with your brother and so (laughs) she shipped us out to Iowa my brother was finishing his last year of chiropractic school at um at Palmer 
okay. uh, which is in Davenport. Yeah. And uh, we took a look around and it was just kind of one of those things where it's like, well, this school seems to be one of the better ones. And, and we ended up going to Bettendorf and it was really weird because I wasn't even going to go out for the wrestling team. And uh, my, my brother, Michael, who's my oldest brother, he can testify to this. So it was his, a friend of his who wrestled had said, you're going out for the wrestling team. And we're at my brother's house. And I'm like, no, I'm not. And I just finished with football. And he said, okay, if I can hold you and your brother Matthew down on the ground, you are going to go out to the wrestling team tomorrow. And literally, I, his name is Garrett, Garrett Brackish. And uh, I was like, okay, dude, like, whatever. Me and my brother Matt were like, okay, game on. Well, in like 15 minutes, man, both of us swimming off of our back. And uh, I honored what I said I would do. I went out for the wrestling team and I had no idea that it was like, I, I think the year before they had won states and the year before that they had like taken second and the year before that they had won it again and all this stuff. So I think Pat was either a junior or senior and I was a freshman and believe it or not, this is what's really cool. So I was a freshman an outsider. I came from, nobody knew anything about me other than me just showing up there. And uh, Pat was actually really cool with me. I distinctly remember, um, even though, you know, he's not that tall a guy back then. He was like, the, uh, the biggest statue you can imagine because yeah. he was, he was like a, a high school heartthrob. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so anyways, it just, it just turns out where uh, Pat was always cool with me and uh, we wrestled back then and I didn't really know what I was doing in the wrestling room. And, you know, thank God it turned out that way, you know? Yeah. You know what? Yeah. Pat's a, Pat's a great guy. We've actually interviewed him uh, here on the show and uh, awesome guy. Uh, man, he is uh, he is conspiracy central, but it is always oh, interesting God, yeah. to talk to him about it. Oh yeah, I, I feel like he's way smarter than me, and I, I, if I believed half the stuff he did, I, I think I'd be afraid to go outside. But um, it, it is what it is, though. He's a great dude, though. Uh, for yeah, sure. Yeah, you get into like the flat earthers, you know, that type of conspiracy. It's like, oh, dude, yeah. it's, it's I can't even go there. It's <laughs> like it's like other world logic, you know. It's like, oh, okay, you know. So I get it. I get it. <laughs> Ignorance is bliss. Let's just put it that way. I'll, I'll yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, man. But, uh, so, so you end up. So you did your little stint there in Bettendorf, and that's interesting because you know the wrestling bug bit you. Uh, which is crazy, oh, yeah. you know, because yeah. uh, I wrestled for a year when I was a senior, and, and I grew up in Northwest Iowa. And um, just that one year, man, I was like, "Yo, this is this is too much." I mean, I did it for my dad, who was a coach, and then I was done. Yeah. You know, but uh, it is life; it really is. Wrestling is a religion. It's life. It's how you live your life. Um, it's really intense stuff, and it really shapes a person, you know, which is pretty cool. Um, so you go back to Toledo and you start doing the wrestling in Toledo. You end up going to Syracuse, man, which which is really yeah, incredible. Which is um, crazy, right? How did you get to Syracuse? I mean, out of all the so schools, it's, it's, a, lot a, of it's schools. a straight. So I even I went down to Ohio State for one of my recruiting trips. I had an opportunity to watch Ohio State in the horseshoe play football. I got to meet, you know, a lot of people on the team. I get to meet Archie Griffin, two-time Heisman oh, wow. Trophy winner. I mean, a lot of really cool stuff. I thought that. Ohio State was going to be it. It was going to be Ohio State. I couldn't see myself really going to a Michigan school. Um, just we were kind of, you know, yeah, it was just kind of drummed in us, you know, you know, Ohio State, 
was the place to go. And uh, I just wasn't, it sounds strange to say, but I wasn't uh, that strong academically. And so I honestly took a look at it and they actually recruited um, a kid that repeated as a state championship, a guy named Ferd Miller. And this kid uh, was a two-time state champ. I won states as a junior, didn't win it as a senior. And then then a combination with the grades, they just kind of went, okay, we're going to pass on you. They recruited Ferd Miller. Um, It's really weird that at my junior year in high school, the assistant wrestling coach for Syracuse spoke at my high school for like a leadership conference or, or something. And I ended up meeting him. His name is Jane Mills. And uh, he said, hey, you know, I see that you won state champion, you know, state championship here. Uh, why don't you come out to my summer camp? And I came out to a summer camp in between my junior and senior year. He watched me wrestle. He was like, holy crap. You know, I think this guy could be a really good wrestler. And he continued to recruit me. He thought I was going to get a scholarship to an Ohio State, yeah. Michigan, or one of the Big Ten schools. And when I didn't, uh, he brought me in for a late recruiting trip. And uh, he offered me what at the time was just a fantastic deal. Uh, Syracuse had a, most colleges have what's called an academic exemption. Um, and so when you don't meet the, the uh, standards of what they would consider for their admission standards, um, athletically, they have a different set of standards. They'll go, okay, you know, you're NCAA eligible. Um, you're not a straight A student. You're not a, you know, honor student. But, you know, academically, you've done okay. Da, da, da. So I got in on, a, on an athletic exemption um, okay. academically. And that was kind of like once the door was open, you know, it it, it, it turned out to be really good. I owe a great debt of uh, gratitude to Gene because he, uh, he stuck with me for, you know, some rough times at Syracuse. You know, there's a lot of growing up that I had to do. So, yeah, Syracuse, great school. Um, amazing school, actually, uh, for media as well. I was looking at it myself. and. Um, that being said, you know, you end up picking up a national championship, which, you know, incredible at 190 pounds. And funny enough, you know, runner up to that was Randy Couture. Uh, I know. Isn't that crazy? You know, all, the, all these things tie in, man. It's like, it's a small world when it comes to wrestling and MMA and some of these things. And, um, talk about that whole process and picking up that championship. Um, I'm guessing final matchup would have been with Randy. How yeah, did yeah, it was. It was. So, oh, God, man, this is so what's kind of unsaid about it. And it's not in any nobody's really written about it because they really haven't talked about it. I wrestled Randy. It's an exclusive. When I, <laughs> I know, right? This is an exclusive, right? So I ended up wrestling Randy. Um, I'm going to say it was my sophomore year. Um, when, when we did a dual meet somewhere in Virginia against Oklahoma state and he ended up beating, beating me like five, four. And it was kind of one of those things where it's like, uh, you know, it was early enough in the season where a lot of, a lot of the better wrestlers don't get stronger till the end of the season. Um, at the early, like my senior year, part of the reason why I ended up winning an NCAA championship, I didn't make the cut down to, to my end to 190 pounds until the end of the year. Um, I wrestled heavyweight for, for a large part of the season and it just allowed my body to stay healthy longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can kind of get through the a good chunk of the season before you make your cut. And so um, it, it was crazy because 
you know, it came into mind when finally, when everything shook out at the NC tournament, I realized that Randy was going to make it through um, on the other side of the bracket. Um, that it was like, holy crap, man, it's going to be, this is going to be a grind. Because the one thing I remember about him when I wrestled him before was when you have a Greco background, like a Greco-Roman background, you're a grinder. You just are mauled. Look at Dan Henderson, the way Dan Henderson fights. He's just relentless, man. He's a mauler. And then when you watch Randy, Randy is really good at dirty boxing and in tight, close. You know, he can do a lot of stuff. So when looking at it wrestling-wise, he's Greco background. He's going to be a pusher and a grinder. And that's what I remember before. And so part of my whole strategy, when you get somebody that pushes that hard, is you do a lot of level changes and he just was falling over the top of me. So I ended up, you know, shooting one shot, putting him to his back, and then it ended up being a, a 12-4 victory, which was, you know, looking back on it, it, it probably could have been a lot closer than that. Yeah. Um, just I think Randy was so, so amped up to try to win an NCAA championship because the year before he had taken second. And yeah. so, again, he had taken second. So, I mean, he's redeemed himself a thousand times over. I mean, he holds so many accolades, um, which is incredible because – uh, what I was going to say is he's four years older. Yeah. So in college, say I, say I was twenty four. Say I was twenty. Uh, would have been twenty three. He was like twenty six or twenty seven. It's amazing. So he That's crazy. Yeah, he, oh, unbelievable! Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, Randy's that guy, man. It's that kind of has epitomized his whole career. Is he's always been just a little bit older than everybody else, and it just makes those victories and those accomplishments that much sweeter. Oh, incredible. Incredible. What he was able to do in his forties is it's incredible. I mean, you don't, you might be able to do basketball when you're, you know, be a Vince Carter and play into your 44, 45, yeah. 46, but you're not doing no MMA when you're 45, 46 at any kind of level that means anything. Yeah, you're, you're right. Every time we see anything close to that, it doesn't usually look too good. So, um, you know, you end up moving to MMA, and and we'll talk about that with with uh, obviously Mark Coleman, uh, the big cat Tom Erickson. Love yeah, that. He's yeah. Awesome. Um, but you know, I I read back on I was looking at your bio a little bit about how you really loved WWF and you loved wrestling back in the day. Was that even a consideration back then? Because uh, I mean, wrestling was pretty big at that time. Did you think? Oh, it was I, I tried to figure something out here and try that route. You know. Part of part of uh, what I did do, I just started fighting, and there was two WWE shows that came here to town. The one show I had an opportunity to actually meet was Shane McMahon, okay. and uh, physically he could see that I had the physicalness yeah. of what they were looking for, and he just sat me down. There was another guy named RJ that was one of the announcers forever, like the old, old dude that wore the cowboy hat, you know, yeah. So, oh, JR, 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 yes. So I had an opportunity to talk to him too. So basically, um, they both said to me, said, this is, this is, a, this is like a man's world, the WWE, because if you're not, if you're not a hundred percent committed to this and you, you have anything that, um, how did they describe it? Basically, if you don't have your shit together, this yeah. will just eat you alive. You know, you're on the road 300 days out of the year. Um, you're traveling. It's a sh huge ton workload. And if you're not able to handle it and you don't think you're able to handle it, don't even try. 
Sure. Because because the industry, you know, it produces a lot of bad habits. You know, taking instead of stretching, getting healthy, going to physical therapy or doing whatever, I'm just going to pop some Viking and get in the ring because I got to perform tomorrow. And then the day after I have to do Friday night this or Monday night Smackdown or this, that. And he goes, it'll eat you alive. Yeah. You know? So they made that abundantly clear. Um, they said they would clear a path for me to go to their uh, school in Atlanta, Georgia, um, to be able to do that. And I talked with a guy named Rick Bassman and yeah. Rick basically said the same thing. Rick was like, dude, here, here it is in a nutshell. And, yeah. uh, I just go, I'm going to, you know, for me anyways, I go, okay, I'm going to be fighting for a little bit longer. And, uh, then I think if I'm able to do it, I would, but it never came up again. I actually signed a pro wrestling contract in Japan. Okay. Years and years later. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I did some events there, which was kind of interesting because they do it. Their, their pro wrestling is completely different. And I, I'll go over that in a little bit. Yeah, no, it, it, I love that. And a lot of guys have, obviously, you know, uh, Don Fry being one of those guys. And uh, I think mm-hmm. did it. a ton of guys have, have did that. And, um, and, and I love that. I love that Japan really embraces the fighters like they do. And we will get into that because I think it's amazing how the Japanese embrace the fighters and how they do things. I think it's incredible. And I know you have a lot of uh, experience with the Japanese. Uh, that being said, you go into MMA. Uh, I want to talk before we get into UFC, I want to talk about WVC. So you end up down in Sao Paulo, Brazil, oh, uh, fighting on the same card. You obviously, you run, you win this tournament and that kind of puts your name out there, you know, uh, but Pedro Hizo is also on this card. And yeah, yeah. Was this your first time in Brazil going down there for that? Yeah, it, it was. And this was kind of one of those really interesting things where um, where the guy that was helping me out was a, was a local guy here named Richard Hamilton, and he had a, a karate dojo <clears throat> in uh, the same place where we were training for the 96 Olympics. It's how yeah. we kind of met, you know, he originally signed Coleman. He signed me. He signed Tom Erickson. Um, he helped Dan Severn out. So he, he literally like kind of wandered into, you know, badasses den, you know, basically. And, yeah. uh, sure. and so, um, he was the original guy and I didn't know what I was saying yes to because he's like, Hey, we're going to do this Valley Tudor. It's going to be this thing down here today. And they're going to give you, all I heard was they're going to, they're going to pay you $25,000. Yeah. And I think that year leading up to the 96 Olympics, I, I was still on AS, or, um, Syracuse's payroll. So that was like, that was, I think $950 a month. Yeah. Uh, and then that was only for, eight months out of the year. And then I was getting a stipend from Fox sketcher. That was like $1,200 a month. So I think that whole year I made like $21,000 yeah. and uh, somebody's offered me 25,000 to fight in one night and it's going to be in cash. Yeah. So, so I was like, okay, yeah, I'll do it. You know, it was that simple. Yeah. Okay. And when I signed up for, you know, we started training for it. It was like, I don't even know really what I'm training for. We're watching VHS tapes. I don't know if you <laughs> Like, like of course. Somebody, somebody, somebody that's listened to us, they'll go, yeah, I think my mom has some of those in the closet somewhere. <laughs> of course. Um, so, so I'm getting VHS tapes. I'm watching it, doing all this stuff, trying to figure out what. And it just really, until I got down there, it, it really wasn't apparent that this was like the basement of a hotel. Yeah. Um, it was, and I'm not kidding, it was probably... 700 
750, 900 Brazilian men. And it was just a bunch of Brazilian men and a couple of Brazilian. I mean, for every one Brazilian, for every one Brazilian woman, there was at least 50 Brazilian men there. It was just crazy. And it was a ring. There was no locker room. There was no nothing. There was like a, a tiny, you know, probably four foot by eight foot partition. That was my locker room. Yeah. You know, it was, it was great. Like looking back on it going, Oh shit. I said yes to that. Yeah. And it was no, no rules, no gloves. The only thing you weren't allowed to do is bite, you know, and, and, and gouge somebody in the eye. You're allowed to headbutt, knee, elbow, kick, punt, you know? So yeah. looking back on it, no, if you would have told me all this stuff, we're probably like, nah, I'll find yeah. a different way to make money. Yeah. It was next level. I've, I've seen, I've watched some videos and some of the old stuff with Vanderlei Silva and just, wow, man, it's uh it is next level. It really is. Um, it really is no rules. I mean, it's, it's wild stuff. And, uh, and I, there's a couple of things I took from what you were just talking about. First of all, to be in Brazil uh, in an arena and it's just all the men, that's not too good because there's a lot of beautiful women in Brazil. I, I would imagine you'd want oh, to spend God. time with the women, not all the men. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Uh, there are yeah. a lot of good-looking women in Brazil. Yes, there are. It just goes yeah, without saying. Like, I've been down there quite a few yeah. times myself, but, uh, but I was married the whole time, but I could only look, but wow, amazing stuff. But that being said, uh, you, I also heard a key, another key word, something that dinged in my head that I didn't realize. So you were getting a stipend from Foxcatcher. Yeah. So I didn't know that. I didn't know that you were working with Foxcatcher. I, I had yeah. no idea you were tied in with all that. Uh, yeah. God, give, give me something. Give me something from the Foxcatcher so, experience. So Oh man. Oh God, man. It, it's a lot to unwrap. It, re- it really, it really is. Cause there's a lot, there's yeah. a lot there. I was kind of late to the show. So I ended up signing with Fox Sketcher in uh, 1993. Okay. Um, that's after I, I made my first world team. And, um, and so John DuPont, you know, obviously he's got the world team traps. He sees me wrestle um, I talked to another guy named Rob Calabrese who actually lived on the farm. And Rob Calabrese is like, hey, you know, you need to go see John. So I actually drove from Syracuse down to Philadelphia, um, showed up at the, at, the, uh, at the farm and uh, met with John and stuff. And, he, you know, he just was very, um, you know, it's really interesting. When the movie came out, I had talked to the director. Um, he interviewed a lot of people prior yeah, to the movie. And one of the things, one of the questions he asked me, he said, what is one of the first things you notice when you meet with John yeah. DuPont. And I said, you know, the first time I met with him, one of the things I noticed is for somebody that has that much money, he has his all teeth are rotted out of his mouth. It's wow. the weirdest thing in the world. That is weird. Yeah. Yeah. You have a 50,000 square foot house. You have a thousand acres of land, which are worth you know, tens of millions of dollars and you got your teeth are all rotted out. I, I could, I couldn't figure it out. And there's so many other little giddy ups that were weird about him. Yeah. Um, I've been, I've stood down in the basement of the big house. We call it the big house, uh, which was his, uh, you know, mansion that he lived in. And I've looked at certain places in the basement of the big house. Cause he promised me that there were these secret passages and all this. So, you know, looking back on it, it's actually tragic because it was probably, a harbinger of things to come um, realizing that he, he was schizophrenic. um, He had untreated alcoholism. um, He had untreated drug addiction 
And all of that manifests itself into this psycho, you know, psychopathic delusion of him thinking people were after him yeah. and him, him holding, you know, he actually left his whole estate to a wrestler named Valentino Giordanov, who's wow. a Bulgarian wrestler. Yeah. He, in the family tried to contest it and all this, and he actually wrote a will when he was clear thought of mind and everything. Um, I think that he actually cared for or loved, like was infatuated with Valentino um, and left his estate. And I think it's just a, just a theory that, that part of what happened to Dave Schultz was because of Dave's relationship with Valentino and that precipitated John finally having a psychotic break and, and it's just tragic. It's just tragic. You know, I, Dave was my coach. Dave was my coach for three years. Wow. For three years, 93, 94, 95. And then he was murdered in January of 1996. So leading all the way up there, I spent a lot of time down at the farm, oh a lot of time. I can only and, imagine, but you know, outside of having to have these run-ins with DuPont, what, I mean, the atmosphere must've been cool because I mean, you know, you're surrounded by your brothers with, with wrestling and it must've been really cool outside of when he pops in and I'm sure everything yep. just got tense and weird, right? I mean, is that yep, basically yep, what? Yep. Oh, 100%, 100%. It was honestly, when it was just the guys hanging out, like we would go to Rob Calabrese or we'd go down and we'd have a barbecue at Dave and Nancy's house or yeah. we'd go over to, you know, one of the other wrestlers, you know, and stuff. Oh my God, it's like, you're kidding me. It's fantasy land. You have state of the art, you have an indoor Olympic swimming pool. Yeah. Indoor Olympic swimming pool. Right. You have a state of the art wrestling facility with full. You have three full mats. Right. You have a training area. You have a kitchen area. You have a training facility. You had back then, which was state of the art. You had laser disc um, uh, study so you can study. He, he had accumulated a lot of footage of all these wrestlers from around the world and you can pull them up on laser disc and you can study how this person did the single leg or double leg and this that and the other so he was way ahead of it as far as the facility the opportunity what it was it was awesome yeah it was awesome man you don't have dave schultz and and all these guys accumulating in that area and everyone training if it wasn't a freaking amazing training facility yeah. And then you add John in and it gets, it just throws it off center. <laughs> <laughs> to, to say the, to say the least. And it, yeah. it, we, we could talk about that all day, but you know what? I, I, I want to talk about, about pride. Um, well, another well, UFC as well. I mean, obviously UFC, you had this, it's like you were there. It was like almost like a cup of coffee, but you, you kicked ass. I mean, in the time you were there, boom, you're kicking everybody's ass and then you're gone. Um, which yeah. is crazy, you know. I mean, you, you ran through two tournaments and um, um, a couple things that stood out to me, um, you know, that first one, you know, you had Coleman on top of the card and he loses his title. Yeah, the I same know. one where you win the tournament, that had to be super bittersweet, you know, to win the tournament, but, but your guy losing his belt. Yeah. It, you know, leading up to that, man, we, you know, him and I knew that um, – that if he didn't get it open, if he didn't get it over quickly, that it was going to be, it was just going to be a long night. You know, we had, we had a condensed training camp. Um, he was kind of dinged up a little bit. So we didn't spend that much time on our, in the wrestling room. 
Um, you know, so Mark and I spent more time in the weight room and doing cardio that way. And that doesn't prepare you like you need to be prepared for an MMA fight. And, um, so that was bittersweet. Mark, Mark, as always, you know, he was, he, you know, backstage, he was ecstatic for me. He was just happy, uh, that I, you know, like, so it's like, you know, getting your cherry broke, you know, when you're fighting yeah. for the UFC, you know, it was such a big deal to do it domestically here. Um, oh, for sure. You know, and it's just one where it's like the training camp was me, Coleman, and Kevin Randleman. It was us three training together. That guy. So, I mean, it, and that um, guy, too. I mean, we could talk a half hour on that or an hour on that. That guy, I, I've had yeah. a chance to spend time with Randleman, uh, a really solid weekend in Vegas where we were kind of all working together. And that was just one of the most dynamic wild, um, interesting characters I've ever been around in my life, man. Uh, yeah. Such cool guy. yeah. And I hate that yeah. he's gone. It's very, very yeah. sad. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, sometimes in certain topics, when I talk to Cole about it, man, he's, he's not over. He's still got a broken heart over it. He, yeah. he does, you know, yeah. he really does. So, um, another guy, uh, Dan Bobish, you know, we, we go to, to the next tournament, you end up beating Bobish. That guy, you know, Interesting guy, Dan Bobish, because you don't hear a whole lot about him, but he was one of those guys that was steady back in the day, huge guy. Um, g- give me some thoughts on Dan Bobish. Just, uh, oh, God, man. Like one of those things I look at and it, like not even realizing, like how am I going to move him? I, I mean, how am I yeah. going to move him off center? I mean, when you got that lowest center of gravity and you're that stocky built, um, like the two things I always had trouble with wrestling-wise was a guy built like Bobish or really, really tall, lanky guy. Yeah. Are the two things. Because tall, lanky, I, don't, I can't get leverage on certain things. Short, squatty, I just can't move him. And yeah. uh, that was my first thought when I saw Bobish. It was like, oh, man, this is going to be – and it turns out where it's like once I got in and got a hold of him, it was almost like equal strength, equal strength. But it was like, you know, I have better wrestling skills. I could knock him off center and get him off axis and, and tip him over. And uh, like any big dude that's built like that, once he gets in certain positions, it, it's just going to be really hard to fight off of him. You know, he's yeah. a top guy. He's not going to be a guy that wants to try to lock in any kind of a guard or anything like that. I couldn't even imagine seeing Bobus trying to pull someone in a guard. <laughs> yeah, man, it he's just, a, an absolute beast. Kind of reminds me of, of Tim Sylvia. It's man, just an interesting fighter, you know. And you go to Pride, and the funny thing about Pride, or the interesting thing to me about Pride, is that this, this was a big move because you come into the UFC and make such an impact – Win in two tournaments, then you jump to Pride. Now, nowadays with social media, you know what's going on because you see oh, everything. Yeah. Yeah. every negotiation, every conversation. People are talking about it on Twitter. But back in the day, you never heard about these things. What was going on behind the scenes? Was it purely money? Was there something else going on between you and UFC? Did maybe was there a disagreement or something where you guys didn't connect? Uh, talk talk about that jump. There there was there was a disagreement with uh, with the UFC. They the original contract I signed with them was for a three tournament fight deal, and after I did number fifteen, they were going to do an event in Japan that was going to be a single fight. It wasn't going to be a tournament. And I, and I told him, I said, my, my contract is invalid for a single bout because it specifically says in there that you sign me for three 
tournament. Yeah, and I, black and, white, I, right? and I, yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to renegotiate on it because it was like, okay, I'm going to do a single bout. The competition is going to be a little bit higher. Um, you know, because sometimes when you fill all the holes in a bracket, you're going to fill some of the holes with fluff. You know, you're going to put good guy here, good guy here, and you wanted to meet at the end. Of course. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to renegotiate it. Um, at that point, the UFC didn't have any leverage because it was only legal uh, in four states. It was like Alabama, Mississippi, and a couple other states that would allow their boxing commission to sanction it. And, uh, and at that time, um, I, I got approached by an attorney that had been contacted by Pride. Um, it was called KRS back then. It wasn't called Dream Stage Entertainment, right? It was called yeah. KRS. Um, and so they, they contacted me through an attorney in New Jersey. And that attorney said, hey, would you at least entertain the idea of fighting in Japan? Um, and here's kind of preliminary what I've been authorized to, to offer you. And he said, uh, we would like, first, we would like for you to fight Hoist Gracie. That was one. And then the second part was, we're willing to pay you $155,000 to fight Hoist. And the UFC was paying me $25,000 for a tournament. So for two fights, I was getting $25,000 for one fight. And against Hoist Gracie, I get paid $155,000 and it's all in cash. Yeah. Wow. So I was like, okay. I said, what do I need to like literally? I go, I don't need you don't even need to take it any further. I said, what where 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 like literally where are we going from here, right? Yeah, of course. And uh, they made arrangements for me to fly from Phoenix to San Francisco. Uh, in San Francisco, I picked up an interpreter that got on the same flight with us. Um, that was like, like assigned to me. He was like, "I'm your guy. Whatever you need, you, 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 you know, I'm your guy." Yeah. And so we flew over to Japan, and I got an opportunity to meet with uh, everybody. And actually, Hoist Gracie and I did a news conference. And there's a fight poster. Okay. They're super rare, oh, super wow. rare. I think it says, I think it's Pride. Pride two, and it's him and I faced off against each other. Yeah, and it says Hoist Gracie Marker has the date for the fight, the cost for the tickets, everything. Yeah, and uh, the tragic thing is when I got back to the states, the UFC had heard about the news conference and all that, and uh, they actually sued me in federal court. They sued me in New York City, which okay. that at the time that's where the jurisdiction was for my contract. Um, and they sued me in federal court. And so they put an injunction on it. They tried to take my passport. Yeah. Um, it literally, it turned into a cluster because it literally was like they had no rights for a single bout. They only had rights for a for multiple fights in one night of tournament fight. And they just kept saying, no, 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 no. You know, it's for all fights. And even though it's specified tournaments in the contract and they fought it. I mean, it, it, I know it ended up costing, uh, <laughs> I know it ended up costing a lot because I ended up getting uh, an attorney in New York City that I actually went to Syracuse with, a guy named Frank Ryan. Uh, his brother, Tom Ryan, is the head coach at Ohio State. 
Okay. Um, and so I went to school with both of them, Tommy Ryan and Frank Ryan. And Frank Ryan became an attorney. I hired him. And da, 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 da. it turns into basically where here's the screwy part is. So I, I'd only fought in the Valley Tudo, Pride 14, Pride 15. They sue me. You know, Pride doesn't want to take on that liability because if they had me fight and then the UFC wins for breach of contract, they can turn around and sue Pride yeah. for unspecified damages. Da, 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 da. So basically, I was almost going to be locked out of the industry because if the UFC won, they could choose to not exercise the right for that last fight and just have me sit on the sidelines oh, yeah. forever and a day. Or Pride could have just said, sorry, it's too complicated. Thank you, but no thank you. Yeah. And so it ended up being at the end of the day where, where a lot of money was spent that didn't have to be spent. Um, they basically said, okay, we're done fighting this. Uh, buy out your last option. So they spent $400,000 on attorneys for me to pay them $25,000. Oh, jeez. Wow, man. Wow, yeah, so get, isn't that crazy? It is. It's twisted, man. It, 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 you, get, you got caught up in the bureaucracy of it yeah, all. Yeah, that's and, what it was. That's what it lot, was. And a lot of fighters have over the years. And, you know, when you're a company like UFC, when you keep that legal counsel at all times, you know, oh. um, they're, they're going to they're gonna do what they got to do. You know what I mean? It's, uh, it is what it is. But, you know, you do end up in pride. Um, you didn't. I'm sure you made uh, some decent paydays. To say yeah, yeah, paid. yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it, I made up for it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, the only other thing I'll say about UFC is, do do you have any other regrets? Obviously, I didn't know about quite about that falling out and that lawsuit part of it. Do you have any regrets that like maybe you didn't hold the heavyweight title or that you yeah. didn't more domestically? I mean, when you look back at it now. Yeah, I you know I that's the one regret. So so winding the clock back the so when all that was going on, the UFC was still owned by Bob Meyerowitz. Yeah, uh, Bob Meyerowitz is the one that sold it to the Fertitta brothers, and they've sold it, you know, so on. So when Bob sold it, he sold it, and uh, so when Frank and Lorenzo ended up buying it, I had an opportunity to to go up to excuse me, Tito Ortiz's training camp uh, for the first fight they were going to have um, as new owners of the, of the UFC. And uh, so I went up and I met Frank and Lorenzo and an opportunity to drive with them from Big Bear in California all the way back out to uh, Beverly Hills, which is like a three and a half, four hour drive. And I had an opportunity to get to talk to them, get to know them. They invited me out to New Jersey um, for the first fights and stuff, so on and so forth. So they actually offered me um, a fight and that was, they, they, I was still under contract with the Japanese Yeah. and they offered me they approached me one time and offered me a fight. And when I said, I can't do it at this time, I can do it in the future when I'm not under contract. And the Japanese would have let me fight. If I had protested enough, they would have let me fight domestically here. Um, and that was it. That was the one offer they made. And what that was, was what it. What was the fight? Pete Williams, actually. Really? The fight Pete Williams, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It was just one of those things where it was like, it was a one offer. And, you know, I was talking to their booking guy, Joe. Um, I always blank on his last name, but he did the matchmaking for years and years and years. Silva. And years. Joe Silva. Yeah. Yeah. Silva. 
Okay. Yeah. So Joe, Joe called me, says, here, we got this worked out. And again, it was for, it was for $25,000. Yeah. Jeez. I mean, yeah. I mean, once you get a taste of six figures, it's kind of hard yeah. to <sighs> take it back. It's still, there's a lot of controversy today that these guys just don't get paid what they should, you know? Uh, and I, I'm kind of in that camp as well, especially for the guys that are coming up and even the mid, the middle, you know, mid-range guys. I think they ought to be making a little bit more than what they do. Um, there's always going to be that argument for unions and so far, you know, and all that. But I would like to see the guys get paid a little bit more. And, and I definitely – 100%. Because it's a tough oh, life. God. It's a very, very tough life. It's brutal. It's brutal. So if you're a fighter, this is the way I thought back then. I thought like I have X amount of fights, right? So I, I'm thinking I have X amount of fights. So every time I step in the ring, I got to maximize what I can do financially because I have to take one fight off the board, right? Say I got 25 fights and I'm 15 fights into it and I think that I have 10 fights left. That's yeah. what my body can do. That, that's it. That just, that, that's the number that I put down, just knowing that how our training camps are. Um, it, you know, the fights are easy. The training camps are what, what just beats the crap out of your body, right? So, I have, so every time I'm in that ring, man, I got to say, how much is it worth? I mean, where, I'm going to take it off the board. I better try to put as much financial security behind me as I possibly can. So yeah. I never questioned why I made the decision I made, even though a friend of mine said, hey, you know, usually you try to make a decision as if you had a million dollars in the bank. What is the best possible decision for you? And in some situations that you can do that. You can go, okay, is it, is it the best for me to do X or Y or, or Z or D, you know, but other ones you can't. And, and with fighting, just, you know, in the ring, you have to go, how much are you going to pay me? And it needs to be enough to make sense. You know, I believe in, there should be a commission. There should be a league. It should be divested from Dana White being the only arbiter of somebody's MMA career. You know, he can say, hey, your career goes on or nope, you're done. Retire because I'm not going to pay anymore. I'm not going to have you fight anymore. And it makes it really tough because I think I think along your lines, it's like, you know, I looked at it like this when they when the dollar amount was announced, what they sold the company for. The reason why they sold it for four billion dollars is because they never paid any of their fighters. You can make a good argument with that. You can certainly make a very good argument with that. You're right. And, and I try not to be so incredibly critical, but because I think that there's, there's things about the UFC that are great. And, and I think yeah. that if you're, you as a fighter are good at marketing and you're good at doing some of the things you can do, I think you can do well with it. But not everybody can talk like Conor McGregor and not nope. everybody has these connections. You know what I mean? It's uh, and for those guys, you know, you do okay, but by the time you pay this guy and pay this guy and pay this and pay that doesn't leave a whole lot of meat on the bone anymore, you know? So nope. Uh, nope. It's, it's crazy. Um, the, the, the part about it is the UFC tried to get every single aspect of they own you know, tap out. They took it away a fighter's right to have anything on him. So he can no longer make money off advertising on his clothing or this, that, and the other. They scooped every single dollar off of a fighter's plate as they possibly could because that's on the side of look how much money we're making. And, and again, you know, it's, it's a business. I get it. It's America's capitalism. But when you're doing off the backs of fighters, 
Yeah. That that that's where I have issues with going. Okay, you're going to leave these guys beat up and broke at the end of a career. Okay, yeah. I'm not okay. I'm not okay with that. Yeah, you're right. I'm not. There's man. There's a lot of voices out there. You know, a guy like uh, Nate Corey, who I'm really good friends with. There's a lot of guys out there that are really pushing hard to make some of those things that we're talking about a reality. And I really do hope that it gets there. I, I really, really do for the fighter's sake. Um, while you're in Pride, I, I have not been over to Japan. I, I've only passed through the airport. I've never announced in Japan, and I've never commentated in Japan. It's one of those things that's high on my list. Um, being a part of Pride at that time when it was literally the biggest and best oh. and just legendary. You know, everybody to this day would give anything to have that sort of energy back, you know. It was oh, it's incredible. Incre- and so many guys that never even went to the UFC that are just legendary, like your your Fedors and a guy you know, of course, with Igor. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Some of these guys that never even stepped into UFC, but they're legendary and they never had to step into UFC. Give me, because we could talk all day about pride. We really could. Oh, yeah. Things yeah. I want to get on. Give me, give me a story just from being in Japan at the height of your career when people are screaming for you guys. Oh, God. Just give me a good story that represents how crazy your life was in Japan at the height of it all. So, um, so one of my training partners was Rico Rodriguez. And uh, before – before Rico ended up signing a contract with the Japanese, um, I brought him over with me uh, to one of my fights, and uh, he cornered for me. And uh, it was the first time over to Japan, um, and he's a jiu-jitsu guy, so for him, you know, Japan took on a couple different roles. Uh, for him, it, it, you know, it gives him an idea. Like, I brought him to a couple different dojos um, that he could experience that would be like, you know, just a, just a really cool experience for him. And um, so so I said, Rico, I said, this gives you an idea of, of the popularity of the sport here. I said, watch this. So we were in um, – Oh God, I'm going to say it's close to Rapungi, which is their like entertainment district. I said, I'm going to stand on the street corner here for 20 minutes. And in 20 minutes, I'll have 50 people that, that'll be around me. And Rico's kind of looking at me like, <laughs> like, okay, like, yeah, you're in the middle of the city. There's 30 million people, right? And you're going to stand on the street corner and there's going to be people that are going to recognize you and they're going to ask for autographs and pictures. I go, oh, yeah, maybe about 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And I goes, okay. So I just literally standing on the street corner and sure enough, man, within 30 minutes, there's like a sea of people around me <laughs> and they're asking for pictures and they're the politest people in the world. I swear. I mean, it's, it, most of it's like, you know, they call me Mr. Mark. It's like, actually, if you look at like my username on most stuff, it's Mr. Mark and no, no one understands where it's from. Cause you get off the airplane and the airplane and Rico used to bust my chops about it all the time. He'd go, Oh no, Mr. Mark, Mr. Mark, Mr. Mark. <laughs> So, 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 um, so anyways, we would literally stand there within like 30 minutes, man, a town, you know, a city of 30 million people, man, there are people lined up and they're surrounding you and they're asking for pictures and autographs. And, you know, it was just a really, really, really cool experience, you know, and for me to be able to share that with some of the guys, like I brought my brothers over there, um, and my brothers had the opportunity to share that with me. Um, which is a big, big deal. And, uh, you know, Rico, who's like a little brother to me as well, um, just a fantastic, really, really fun 
uh, incredible. I mean, definitely for you, any kind of chance you can go over there, go over there. It's a really, really, really cool, interesting, um, incredible society. Uh, probably one of the most interesting, you know, social dynamics that go on. You just sit back as an American and you're like, oh, that's interesting. Like, wow. wow. You know, you just hear so, some of the stuff you're totally displaced by because you're like, I, you know, you just it's just different culturally. Yeah. Um, so really, really cool. That was probably my, one, of, one of my better experiences is doing that with Rico. No doubt. You know, that that's that's awesome. And, you know, you always see another thing that always comes with pride is this the shadiness that you hear about. So you hear mm-hmm. almost the conspiracy theorist types, but with the fight game, right? So you hear about, you know, obviously the ties with Yakuza and you talk about fixed fights mm-hmm. and maybe things weren't quite as they seemed. I don't know how much you can divulge. Obviously it was a big part of your career, but how much truth is to some of these rumors that you hear about there um, in, in the rumor mills in mixed martial arts about, you know, how legit some of that stuff was and how legit it wasn't? Uh, you know, I know that there was, uh, when it was called KRS before it turned into Dream Stage, the gentleman that I dealt with that started the company, uh, started the company with um, the, is a guy named Mr. Ishii. Uh, Mr. Ishii, who owned K1, Mr. Ishijaka, who owned uh, Pride. And um, I know Mr. Mr. Ishizaka, uh, it, it was crazy because there's, there's so much, there's a lot of validity to it. There's a lot of truth to it. Um, there was a lot of mobsters around. It wasn't like a... It's like going over there. It wasn't like a big secret, you know. It, it, you'd see how the Japanese guys that worked for Pride reacted when Mister Ishijaka was around. You knew that he was just different. Yeah, you knew that there was something about him that was different because he was more than just like a boss or he's more than an owner of the company they just almost like some of the guys and and again like politeness in japanese is like you bow a certain level and then you bow a little bit deeper and you bow a little bit deeper and then you hold your bow with what you're saying like mr shijaka they would just hold their bow until he was out of the room you know it it would be like this reverence of like you're looking at it going uh, like what's he doing usually it's a quick bow like and then standing up and it was like it's strange so stuff like that i knew mystery jaka had a certain affinity for me i would always go over to any of the events either i was participating in or um, over there as whatever he wanted. He'd hang out with me. We'd go out. We'd have yeah. dinner together. He would make it a point to do that with me. And then here's the big part. So when when K1 had their first event in Las Vegas, Mr. Ishijaka came over, and I was not allowed to be at any gaming table with him. I wasn't allowed to have any pictures taken with him. I wasn't allowed to have dinner with him. Yeah. I wasn't allowed to be in public with him. And all of this came from, that's when it transitioned to dream stage. And it came from uh, a gal named Yokino. And she basically said, uh, Mark, here's some things you're, you can, you know, you're here at the event. And she said, just no across the board. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, that's like, that's kind of, Kind of yeah. weird, and that just made the light freedom, bulb go on even more. Type thing. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, you know, the part about it, too, you know, I, I can speak for myself. I never I, I never threw a match yeah. for for anybody. Um, they they had talked a little bit about some stuff and, and it was just one of those weird things where you had to take enough inferences of what they were talking about and it go like, eh, you know, like, all right. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm just not interested. Um, I know that, you know, Coleman had to face some, um, some hard choices with what he had to do to be able to participate in Japan. And it served its purpose because he, you know, as a, as you, one of the best tournaments assembled talent wise, he's the champ man. And there's no way he gets to participate in that without having to do some stuff that I know he didn't agree with. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, and he, he's admitted to, he's admitted to stuff before and I'm not, I'm not letting the cat out of the bag here. It's sure. just, I know that he was on like a three or four fight losing streak and they basically held it over his head of like, yeah, you can come fight for us, but we need you to do something for us first. Yeah. You know, and I know it was kind of something like that. And it's like, uh, okay. And, you know, so there was a lot of stuff that you can actually go back and look at it going, Oh God. And I look at it now, it looks like it's pro wrestling. Yeah. You know, so yeah, shit, it, you know. it's crazy. It, it almost, it's one of those things like, you know, uh, it kind of tarnishes it a little bit, but still there's some things you can't deny and you can't deny some of that action and, and that talent and the fights and, uh, some of the best uh, memories that I have is when I started watching some of the pride stuff and uh, and Dan Henderson was my favorite guy. Oh yeah. One of the best. Um, Gosh, we have, we've almost gone an hour and we haven't even talked about, (laughs) which is, Um, (laughs) yeah, my, my producer messes me. He's like, dude, we're in an hour. So Um, anyways, real quick. And I know this is crazy to even try to sum this up quickly, but We covered a lot of the stuff that you see in the Smashing Machine, uh, but one of the reasons why it was so popular, and especially with MMA enthusiasts and the hardcores, those, those are the ones that all, you know, quote the Smashing Machine and, and look back at these things. And that's where I always heard it in the back of my head, but I never sat down and watched it. Um, do you ever look back at that and see what was going on at your life, going on in your life at that time and think, you know, what the hell was happening? I mean, obviously you lived it. But then to yeah, go back yeah. and watch, you know, two, two and a half hours, whatever it is, and see that, um, it must kind of blow your mind, like how things were Oh, going. it was it was impossible to – so when they filmed it, they filmed it from like 1999 going, to, going into 2000 into uh, the Grand Prix. And so um, they didn't let me see one second of film. Like I didn't sit down and watch it daily or anything like that, any outtakes from it. So I didn't see any of the film. I had an idea of like, oh, they filmed this, they filmed that, they filmed this, you know. Yeah. So the first time I ever watched it, I watched it in California at the Dolby Sound Studios. So it's a movie theater, and it's just me and the producer, the director, um, the cameraman. And it was like six of us in a movie theater, right? And we sit down and watch it. These guys aren't even watching the movie. They're watching my reaction to everything that I'm watching on film. and. The film gets over, and I and I literally, I'll never forget this. I, I like stood straight up, and the lights came on. And John Greenhouse, the producer, was like, "So what'd you think?" And I just looked at him with a blank face, and I go, 
dude, I'm going to have to get back with you, man. Uh, I'm going to have, uh, I'm going to have to get back with you. And he goes, what do you mean get back with us? It was like, I mean, I'm going to have, you're going to have to like check in with me like tomorrow or something. I'm like, I don't even emotionally, I'm, I'm yeah. just like exhausted. I'm exhausted right now. Sure? And I, I got, I literally left and these guys were following behind me going, Hey, you okay? And I go, yeah, I'm gonna, like, I'm like, just leave me alone. You know, I'm going to be okay. Just leave me alone. And I got my car and I drove off and, and John had called me right after that. He's like, Hey dude, are you sure you're going to be okay? And I go, yeah, just, you know, that's a lot. Process, just trying to process it all. Yeah. Oh. Has, has, has your, uh, so you said you have a son. Has your son seen it? Has, have, have you walked he down actually, there? With, with, yeah, without my permission, man, he had, he had uh, watched it. Oh God, man. I think it's going to be like two or three years ago. Oh my God. And uh, he knew it existed because he had seen the, he had seen the, how, how you, and, you know, he's just like, Oh, and I was like, Oh, is it, you know, is it, they followed me a film crew and da, 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 da. not going into the content, you know, I mean, he obviously understands that I'm in recovery, um, yeah. you know, in, in all this different stuff. And so he ended up watching it. Oh my God, man. It was like, Oh, it was it like being grilled about, not about everything. <laughs> Here's what's funny about it. Here's what's funny yeah. about it. Sarah's, so all he wanted to talk about was my fight. He didn't want to talk about anything else. Wow. All he goes, hey, hey, dad, dad, dad. He goes, in that one fight, when you're doing that, why don't you just stand up and start kicking him in the head? You know, or something like that. And they'd be like, oh, my God, you're, you're, like, you're being serious right now? He goes, yeah, I would have stood up. And, and so he was critiquing my fighting more than anything else. Wow. And I was like, are you, like, are you sure you don't have other questions? I just said about fighting. So, so that was a relief in some sense. I mean, I obviously he's, he, you know, full, full disclosure on a lot of stuff that's going on in the past. And I mean, my son just can, can judge me for, you know, obviously for what I've done from, from then until now. And, you know, I'm not even close to the same person. So, okay. Final thing. And we got to get into this, man. It was announced, uh, you know, the rock announces that he is making the smashing machine. Um, the rock is going to play you. First of all, drink that in. That's awesome. I know. Right. Oh my God. (laughs) Incredible. But then he's going to do this movie. Obviously there has to be a huge process to this. Uh, finding out about it, and we talked off air, and obviously things with the yeah, life and, yeah, and all that. Yeah. But we'll we'll skip we'll skip all that all that stuff with the paperwork and the laws and all that stuff. But it's happening now. Um, what can you tell us about the process and maybe the time that you had with DJ? You guys are on that sort of. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably cool. That's probably cooler to your son than everything that you did in your fight career that you're just hanging out with the rock and calling them DJs. I know. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) So, you know, obviously the the pandemic, well, the pandemic has slowed things down, but it's, it's, you know, anything that's come up that he can do now, he's, he's, he's doing, and he's like, Hey, I promise you, you know, this is like next on slate uh, coming up into the 2021. He's going to try to release something at the end of that, at the end of that year. If not, he's going to hold it until the following summer, but it's just really cool. You know, he's like, he has an idea when we talked, um, he has a very clear idea in his head of what he wants this to look like. And uh, he woke up in the middle of the night and he's just like, hey, you know, calls his agent, says, here's what you need to do. 
this is my next project. I'm going to end up doing it. And, uh, you know, I know it's going to be the right fit and everything. And, and uh, I ended up speaking with him for quite a bit um, right before I made the announcement in Madison Square Garden. Yeah. So he like calls me up and, you know, texts me, hey, you available? And I was joking. I was like, no, nah, I got to check my schedule. You know, so it's just like, you know, we get on the phone, we, we, we talk and it was this very gracious um very cool conversation and uh he's like hey here's here's what i have in mind you know here's kind of what i'm what i'm thinking i want to do and you know obviously this is just a rough draft but um you know he's very clear about what he wants to do and it's incredible it's like if you're going to have one person on the planet play you it's like that would be the person you would pick you know it's just like holy crap you know he is happening yeah yeah he's on fire yeah, it's it's going to be incredible. And, you know, once we get closer to that, and, and I would just love to do this again, because I think there's more that we could, we could definitely dig into. And, and I'm so happy for you, man, because, you know, after I watch the Smashing Machine, and, and I do my due diligence, and I'm looking into your life, I, I feel like, you know, your story is a story that more people need to know about and more MMA fans need to know about. And, um, and I'm just glad that I could do this with you for for an hour. Oh, thank you, man. Out there, man, because uh, it, it's a cool story, and I think you deserve a lot of recognition out there, my friend. Well, I, I appreciate that, and you know, I said that you know everybody. I go, there's plenty of people out there that have won more championships, won more belts, done more things, but that's not what what a lot of times what what you look at for a story, it's like, you know, through trials and tribulations and ups and downs. And, you know, it's like life, man. It's like all this stuff that's going on right now. It's like, you know, people have gotten dicks kicked in to say the least. And, you know, they're, you know, it's like, how can you rise and rise above it? You know, how can you be better than you were yesterday? And so, you know, I'm fortunate and uh, I appreciate you having me on the show. And for sure, we'll do this again. All right. Well, I definitely appreciate it. Stay safe out there, my friend. And uh, we'll, we'll get in touch soon, and we'll do it again. All right. Appreciate it, Cy. Thanks, bud. And there was the smashing machine, Mark Kerr, here on In This Corner. And, wow, uh, I just love that interview. Um, so much fun. Uh, like I said before, I, I knew about Mark, but I didn't know how like humble and how nice this guy was, man. And it's so cool to see him doing well. So a big shout-out to Mark. and. I think everybody that now knows about it has to be psyched about the Dwayne Johnson biopic of Mark Kerr, The Smashing Machine, and I can't wait till that drops. That is going to be awesome. So uh, maybe we'll get a sneak peek. Maybe Mark will get us in there. That'd be cool. That being said, uh, wow, so excited about next episode, and I think you guys will love it too. Two of the legends that we talk about, and really the two interviews that I've gotten the most feedback on when we did the original TV show that is Tank Abbott and Don Fry. What can you say about these guys, man? They're so outspoken. They had such crazy, wild careers, uh, just colorful individuals. They really are the epitome of what we want on In This Corner. You're going to love these interviews, so don't miss it. That is going to be your next episode here on In This Corner. Make sure you check us out on social and make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast because that just allows us to do even more with the podcast. So if you love what we're doing here, you love the interviews, make sure you hit the subscribe. We're going to be dropping new podcasts twice a week going forward. We have a lot of stuff in the can, a lot of interesting 
colorful, wild interviews here on In This Corner, and I think you guys will love it. So make sure you hit the subscribe and leave a review if you can, whether it be on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. Let us know what you think and uh, direct all of the comments and all that feedback on our social media, at Cyrus the Show, on Twitter and Instagram, and then Facebook. We have an official In This Corner with Cyrus Fees Facebook. Check us out on there as well. Thank you so much for listening, guys. I'm Cyrus Fees, and we'll see you next time here on In This Corner.